0: Coming up on Tech Nation, a full hour of Tech Nation Health. First up, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the future of surgery and simply the future of intervention. Then Dr. Phil Lau, the Director of the Purdue Center for Drug Discovery, tells us why it's so hard for surgeons to remove all the cancerous tissue and a technology that's looking to change that. Finally, Professor Richard Kuhn, who recently was the first to discover the structure of the Zika virus, compares Zika to other viruses like polio and HIV. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. The
0: OkCupid dating site is well known for providing dating analytics, and one of their user experiments just leapt to mind. For 24 hours, they told people that they could do all the normal trying to find a date activities they wanted, but they couldn't see anybody's picture. Users responded in an uproar, so they had to call the whole thing off after about eight hours. But here's the interesting part. For the people who made a match during the dark hours and met up for coffee, real or virtual, number one, there were fewer dating relationships that emerged from those meetups. Looks matter in such things. And number two, the people reported having a great time, a much more satisfying first interaction than normally reported with first encounters. Some actually became friends. This is the antithesis of Tinder, where you look at headshots on your phone and swish right or left for yes or no, all without knowing a single thing about the person you're looking at. There's something to this, especially in the OK Cupid photos or dark experiment. It speaks to how we sabotage ourselves with our own prejudices. Some of those prejudices are visual, and some have to do with a person's name or gender or where they went to school or if they went to school. There's age, the prejudice against every age, and color of skin and who the heck knows. Whatever you are, whatever may be perceived or deduced or imagined about you, somebody ain't gonna like, and unfairly. Well, life's unfair, but your life doesn't have to be stupid if you can help it. And that's what got me to thinking. There's a new job search recruiting site out there, which operates on a whole new premise. It's called Woo, as in wooing someone, W-O-O, woo. And if you Google it, there is so much about wooing people, you have to know the extension to get there. It's woo.io. It's aimed at the people who are satisfied with their jobs. They have a good job. They're dependable. And they certainly don't want to put their name out there that they're looking around. That can be a real career disruptor. But who isn't looking? I mean, maybe you want to work in a different industry or in an emerging field if you can. Work different hours or make a whole lot more money. What is it that you want The trick is to incorporate that and profile the central points of your experience without you being identifiable. It also strips away a lot of opportunity for unconscious prejudice. What's the difference between using your well-earned professional expertise and somehow falling into unconscious prejudice? It was all too real at one place I worked. I happened to walk into a group meeting only to realize that all six people in the group and their manager were white guys with beards. I mean, really? Didn't you guys notice anything about your hiring practices? All these intergalactic searches for the very best people in the world and you could have just written down you have to have a PhD, be white and have a beard? It would sure save a lot on the job search budget. Now employers can look for people who they know can work well and keep a job in the areas they're seeking expertise in. And everyday people stay anonymous until they're ready to reveal who they are. I can't wait to see the data analytics on this one. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Today on Tech Nation, a full hour of Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies. First up, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about the future of surgery, or perhaps more simply, the future of intervention. Then Dr. Phil Lau, the director of the Purdue Center for Drug Discovery, tells us why it's so hard for surgeons to remove all the cancerous tissue and a technology that's looking to change that. Finally, Purdue professor Richard Kuhn, the first to discover the structure of the Zika virus, compares Zika to other viruses like polio and HIV. Now Technation Health chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft. Well, Daniel, what do you got for us
2: today? Well, we've talked a lot on the show about maybe preventative care and health and wellness and lifespan, but folks still get disease, and I think that's not going to go away even with the magic of different technologies. So I thought we'd talk a bit about the future of intervention, everything from surgery to medicalized apps to treat disease uh, and manage it once you have it. So let's start with traditional intervention, surgery. Everyone's familiar with surgery. Oh, yeah. That's a world that's really evolving in interesting ways. We still have to cut people open to take out tumors or, um, you know, manage a whole variety of medical issues. But, you know, we're trying to get less and less invasive. The idea is to be more precise, more personalized. And we're moving into a world of less invasive surgery, you know, in the last 25 years, we're now seeing most surgeries move to laparoscopic. So it's relatively rare that you open up the whole belly. For example, you know scopes going in that use pretty much traditional optics. What's happened in the last decade or so? You've seen ground-picking companies like Intuitive Surgical bring us the world of robotic surgery, and it's not really the robot doing the surgery. There, the surgeon can go basically be in the same room usually, go inside a little terminal, see in 3D inside the patient through the camera and manipulate the controllers and operate in a less invasive manner to take out a gallbladder or a prostate. And right now, the surgeon is directly controlling the robot. That's being augmented and changing in that now, instead of just seeing, for example, the liver that you're trying to resect through the scope, we're starting to see uh, innovation where you can layer in augmented and blended reality. So the surgeon sees from the CT scan where inside that liver the blood vessels are to avoid them or where the tumor is to try and take it out. So ways to augment the sort of situational awareness and make that surgery faster, less complicated. And other work where you can sort of paint with tumor paint, I think is the code word, uh, to make fluorescent areas of where the tumor might be so that you can cut it out. There's always issues in surgery to leave no margins where the tumor or cancer might recur. So it's hard to see that in an open surgery or through a laparoscope. So ways to illuminate and and highlight those areas. So there's a lot of sort of things that are blending together in robotic surgery. And with the sort of advent of artificial intelligence and machine learning, I think what we're going to start to see is the surgeon's going to be able to essentially press a button, draw a line, and the suturing will happen, instead of having to do that by hand, which might be slower or less facile than a machine can do. Or we'll see uh, the ability for guidance. We're seeing now this idea of, Almost a surgical coach can be watching you through the same camera that you are. They might be in New York and you're in San Francisco or you're mentoring a surgical case in Kathmandu. And you can have the help of the best surgeons in the world if you're getting in trouble or they're mentoring a medical student or a younger surgeon through a case to, to help that out. So this sort of ability to blend telehealth and surgery and AI is going to come together to really Impact that field dramatically.
0: And not to mention uh, the robots. Once you start to see how precise the robots can be, how repeatable they are, how steady they are, you say, Oh my goodness, I've been trusting a human hand.
2: (laughs) I picked the robot. I picked the robot. (laughs) Well, we fly all the time with robots. Our, Our airlines today are essentially flying robots. The pilots there, I mean, I'm a pilot, I love flying. I talked to a pilot the other day who was an airline pilot. They spend very little time hand-flying the airplane. It's almost all pressing buttons, and the planes will essentially land themselves. Even in um, eye surgery, if you're getting corrective eye surgery, essentially the laser is set up. You press the, the button after the calculations are done, and it does the basic eye corrective surgery. So I don't think we're going to see robots replacing doctors and surgeons, but they're going to continually augment our skills, make procedures smarter, more personalized, more efficacious. Um, but well,
0: with and, driverless cars, we could have surgeonless surgeries. I don't well, think so. <laughs> think about
2: all those incredible technologies in driverless cars, uh, from lidar to look at the mapping to knowing where the other roads cars are on the road. Those many of those same technologies can overlap and converge in the surgical space. We have the same challenges with regulatory and who's going to pay for it. Things happen a little more slowly sometimes in the medical world than even with self-driving cars. But that's incredible technology. We can apply to healthcare from a whole variety of spectrums, and I think you know we won't especially in areas which don't have enough medical care, nurses, doctors, surgeons, and others, we'll start to be able to extend ourselves. I could go and port into a rural village and help a technician there do a complex surgery or send in the drone to bring in the robot kit to do uh, uh, other elements um, that will augment our abilities.
0: What about people with chronic diseases that need constant medical attention?
2: Well, the classic case would be type 1 diabetes where the patient themselves has to be doing... For their entire life managing their insulin and their blood sugar levels it's uh diabetes is still a horrible disease has lots of downstream implications for folks who don't control their blood sugar as well it can go too low and they can go to coma and die. It can go too high and cause lots of issues And we're starting to see innovation come from unexpected places. I just met yesterday with the founding team at Bigfoot Biomedical here in the Bay Area. It was started by a a quant on Wall Street whose son developed type 1 diabetes. And so he ended up managing the blood sugar of his son. His wife, a physician, also had type 1 diabetes. And he he knows data and how algorithms would help trade. He used that same knowledge to go, could I hack a a continuous blood sugar monitor, glucometer, and connect that through software he designed to the insulin pump, which used to be, have to be programmed by hand, still is, um, and have now shown that they've had hundreds of folks, not in the traditional FDA model, able to now computationally and algorithmically manage their blood sugar, sort of hands-free. Now they formed a company to bring that all the way through very complicated, expensive clinical trials. And I think in a couple of years, we'll see the field of how type 1 diabetes is managed with these sort of smart, connected artificial pancreases, which is partly designed by the leads are folks outside of healthcare, uh, combined with their CEO as the head of the JDRF, who was also son, had type 1 diabetes. So we're seeing new mindsets come in managing chronic disease, and that's blending, you know, cheap sensors, mobile apps, big data, and artificial intelligence so that the algorithm for every diabetic patient keeps tuning and optimizing to their activity, to their diet, to their uh, genomics, um, tremendous opportunity. And that's a bit of an example of digiceuticals, the idea that we're not just going to prescribe a drug like insulin or a medical device like a knee brace or a stent, they're going to be coming sometimes with digital wrappers. So I might prescribe you, uh, for example, uh, a kid might have scoliosis. Um, You can have a wearable uh, scoliosis brace today. They're pretty kludgy. They're made by hand. Now you can use your smartphone to scan the patient. And then 3D print a scoliosis brace that matches that patient's anatomy and even put their favorite Disney character on there and add in sensors to track when that patient's wearing it and add gamification layers. So you can make that young adolescent woman who doesn't normally want to wear it, wear it and get rewarded for it. So there's a company here in San Francisco called Unique, even partnering with Intel to do the sensors to 3D print personalized elements. That's a bit of a digiceutical meets a medical device. Then there's just digiceuticals that are just an app um, for behavior change. Omada Health here in San Francisco has a behavior change platform to take folks who are almost type 2 diabetics or pre-diabetic, put them in a social network, give them a connected scale, wearable device, and using behavioral elements and tracking data, really tune folks to change their behaviors and not become expensive type 2 diabetics. So that's a bit of a prescribable digiceutical that's now FDA-approved or being paid for by, by Medicare.
0: Is there any way we can avoid these surgeries or invasive procedures?
2: Yeah. As we get to be less and less invasive, we want to avoid the need to open up the body, take out the tumor, sew things back together. There's a lot of things that aren't surgically approachable, like metastatic lung tumors or tumors that might be in the in the liver or uterine fibroids that could be approached. And one really interesting technology that's come together is what's called MR-guided focused ultrasounds. You know ultrasound for looking at hearts and babies, it turns out if you focus beams of ultrasound, you can heat up a small area. It's applied focus energy. And that can now heat up, for example, a uterine fibroid and knock that out in a woman and she'll never have to have an actual uh, open surgery. Or if someone has metastatic disease to the liver that couldn't be operated on because there's too many, you could, while a patient's in an MRI scanner, moving and breathing, focus at ultrasound, timing the movement of the breath and focusing and zapping out, essentially burning those burning out those, those spots. And even for things like Parkinson's, where there's areas of the brain that you might be able to hit with a, a a beam of focus energy that knock out the tremor area, you could go into the scanner with a tremor and come out after MR-guided focus ultrasound. Uh, and those are in trials and showing efficacy as well. So really interesting ways to apply energy in the body. Obviously, there's folks uh, looking at antibody-based approaches to deliver chemotherapy and other realms across the spectrum. But we want to move to an area where we pick up disease super early and can treat it in the least effective, in the most effective, least expensive, and less invasive way. And we're seeing technologies move in that direction.
0: I like the idea that you don't have to open me up.
2: <laughs> no one wants to be opened up. That avoids a whole slew of complications. And as I mentioned, surgeries are getting less invasive, and people are going to what used to be a week in a hospital for hip implant or total knee replacement, you're an outpatient surgery. My field of bone marrow transplantation, we're doing essentially outpatient bone marrow transplants where someone gets comes in and gets the infusion of stem cells and leaves the same way next day, and we can monitor them at home. Using connected devices, using their smart homes, using a digital uh, thermometer to track them and bring them in back to the hospital setting if they need more intensive monitoring or therapy.
0: But only if they need it.
2: Only if they need it because no one wants to be in the hospital and uh, it's actually a dangerous place to be.
0: Thank you,
1: Daniel.
2: Thanks, Mara.
0: Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent for Tech Nation Health and founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For many cancers, lung, breast, kidney included, cancer patients undergo surgery to remove the cancerous tissue, hopefully all the cancerous tissue. I asked Dr. Phil Lau, a distinguished professor of chemistry at Purdue University and director of the Purdue Center for Drug Discovery, why is that so hard?
3: The reason why Finding all the cancer is very difficult, is that frequently the cancer metastasizes to different distant locations and those distant sites are difficult to find and to resect. Um, Sometimes the metastases occur locally, in which case when you look at the main uh, tumor mass it's possible to find the adjacent lesions also. But more importantly, a cancer cell is very similar to a normal cell and it expresses or it contains virtually all of the same proteins, it contains a lot of the same metabolites and other components. The uh, visual distinction between a cancer cell and a healthy cell is often very small and difficult to discern. And so, the surgeon is left to try to identify any malignant lesions by two different tools, and that is the, the use of their eyes to see if there's any change in coloration or appearance. Maybe it sticks out or it protrudes. Or alternatively, with their hands, they feel the tumor and it's often uh, a lot harder. Uh, it's more solid, and uh, but not not invariably. The problem is is that um, many of the uh, malignant lesions are not easily detected by either of these uh, tactile or visual methods, and so they go unidentified. And as you probably well know, A substantial fraction of breast cancers recur at the site of the surgery. I think it's up to 40%, uh, depending on the hospital. Uh, In ovarian cancer, the surgery very frequently recurs in the peritoneal cavity, where it spreads. And often, the lesions that cause this recurrence are uh, smaller than a millimeter in diameter. And so identifying these is virtually impossible without the aid of some sort of a visual contrast agent.
0: So how is it we can enable surgeons to do better surgery?
3: Okay. Well, what we do is we look for a difference between cancer cells and normal cells. This difference is very frequently a protein that might be present on the surface of a cancer cell but absent from the surface of a healthy or a normal cell. We then design a homing molecule We call it a targeting ligand that homes in very specifically on this different protein that is different on the cancer cell from the healthy cell. And we simply use that homing molecule as a smart bomb. We attach a very bright near-infrared fluorescent dye to it, and when that uh, conjugate of the homing molecule and the dye is injected into a cancer patient. It circulates throughout the body but only attaches to cancer cells. And as a consequence, the cancer cells glow like a bright light bulb when you turn on the fluorescent lamp and the healthy cells remain dark. And the surgeon then, once he turns on the fluorescent lamp, can very easily see these malignant lesions and even identify some as small as two or three cell in a single cluster. We've shown in some of our clinical studies in ovarian cancer patients, cancer lesions as small as a couple or three cells can be identified and resected. The challenge here is actually to find homing molecules that are capable of recognizing all different kinds of cancer. And so we have focused over the last few years on developing these tumor targeting molecules or these homing molecules for all human cancers. And we believe now that we can safely cover 90 to 95% of all malignant disease in humans. So we have these linked to bright fluorescent dyes, and the resulting molecules are capable of lighting up virtually all human cancers.
0: Now I'm familiar with how you get uh, a new drug passed the FDA, mm-hmm. and or how you get a medical device approved. Mm-hmm. How do you get this complicated relationship of dyes attached to uh, homing modules that get to the cells and light up and then we can do the surgery? How do you get that all approved?
3: Well, Moira, the approval process is often uh, difficult and filled with obstacles and minefields. But in essence, what we have to do is demonstrate that the molecule that images the tumor is both safe and effective. And we, in order to take the molecule into humans, we have to evaluate its safety and efficacy in numerous animal models first. We did that. It proved to be very safe and effective. Then we took it into humans. And to date, uh, the only adverse events that we've seen are uh, very minor allergic reactions. Some patients um, seem to experience some nausea or something of this sort. It's actually well treated with a Benadryl pill and so (laughs) That's (laughs) basically all they have to do is uh, take a Benadryl (laughs) and that uh, assures that these...
0: That's my kind of side effect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) they're
3: very mild. And then the efficacy, we have to demonstrate uh, that it indeed reveals additional cancer tissue that the surgeon would not have seen otherwise. And uh, to do this, one of the ways that we have conducted the clinical trial is to have the surgeon go in and remove all the malignant disease that he or she can see with the naked eye and by t- the, you know, touch by palpation. And then after he or she is finished with the surgery, uh, they turn on the fluorescent light and they see what they've missed. And in the vast majority of cases, uh, they have missed some disease that would have otherwise grown back and caused a, a recurrence of the cancer. So, um, you know, from our perspective, uh, Cancer is a very heterogeneous and difficult disease to cure, but if you can cut it all out, then there isn't any disease left to recur, and that's the best solution to the problem. So improving surgery to enable the surgeon to be able to see and resect all malignant disease is probably the best solution to treating cancer.
0: Now you're in studies now. Where Mm. are those going on?
3: Um, The clinical trials for the early Phase studies, Phase one and Phase two, uh, occurred primarily at the University of Pennsylvania Medical Center in Philadelphia, at the University of Leiden Medical Center in, ha- in the Netherlands, at uh, Moffitt Cancer Center, at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and at the University of California at Irvine. Um, we're now expanding to include uh, sites at MD. Anderson at Memorial Sloan Kettering and some other major cancer centers. All the centers. usual suspects. Well, uh, we would like very much to have our drug tested and uh, evaluated, to some in some cases perhaps optimized at the best uh, cancer centers in the country. I forgot. We also have uh, a trial going out on at Indiana University Medical Center in Indianapolis. <laughs>
0: Close by. Close yeah. by. Yes. Our
3: partners. <laughs> uh, your
0: partners. Your partners yeah. in this. Uh, these are early days yet. Th- this is like you're really studying this. Sounds like this could really change how cancer surgery is done.
3: Yeah. I think if you speak with the surgeons that have participated in these trials uh, today. The first that...
0: time the light goes on.
3: <laughs> uh, the first letters we get back from them, or emails, are always very excited and very... Uh, enthusiastic, and they continue to be, but it's, it's quite a, a an enlightening experience, no pun intended, <laughs> for these surgeons because it enables them to see a lot of disease they couldn't have otherwise found, and it's very exciting. I think most of them agree that this technology, whether it's from our group or from some other group, will change the practice of surgery in the future. I think 10 years from now, you won't see any surgeries being conducted without these tumor-targeted fluorescent dyes. And if I can add, I believe it's not simply going to be used for visualizing tumor tissue, but right now, for example, we're working on a different color of near-infrared dye that will image nerves and still a different color that will image ureters and bile ducts and other essential uh, structures that sometimes get severed and lead to uh, serious morbidities, for example, If a prostate cancer patient uh, goes in for surgery and one of the nerves innervating the prostate is accidentally severed, uh, that patient can become incontinent or impotent. And the same goes for severing a ureter. With that opening in the ureter, the urine would naturally drain into the peritoneal cavity. And so the surgeon, if they accidentally cut it, has to spend the time Religating that ureter back together uh, before they can end and the they surgery. They may
0: not know it.
3: They may not know it in some cases, exactly. And I've watched, and these ureters are often buried underneath a lot of other tissue. And so what we're doing is putting in a near-infrared dye so that they light up a different color from the cancer so when they shine the light, one will appear one color. Hopefully it someday may be, you know, surgery by colors.
2: (laughs) Yes,
0: it's a whole different idea. (laughs) It's a different (laughs) idea,
3: But anyway, I think it will definitely change the practice of surgery.
0: How many of these procedures do you have to do for this to become completely accepted?
3: Well, I think the requirement is, is that we show a statistically significant benefit. And this will depend on the cancer type. For example, in ovarian cancer, it's very common for the cancer to spread, in some cases, like sands of the sea throughout the peritoneal cavity. And so the difference between the lesions that the surgeon can see without the aid of the dye compared with what he or she can see with the aid of the dye, can be enormous, and so the statistical significance is uh, very strong even after the first surgery. So in those cases, you may only have to do 100 surgeries before you convince the FDA that this is absolutely important for the health of the American population.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Phil Lau, the director of the Purdue Center for Drug Discovery. We'll talk more after a break. of Tech Nation, Biotech Nation, and Tech Nation Health are available at iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, Dr. Richard Kuhn, the first to discover the structure of the Zika virus and what that tells us. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation and a full show on Tech Nation Health. I'm speaking with Dr. Phil Lau, the director of the Purdue Center for Drug
3: Discovery. The difference between the lesions that the surgeon can see without the aid of the dye compared with what he or she can see with the aid of the dye uh, can be enormous. And so the statistical significance is is immediately uh, very strong even after the first surgery. So in those cases, you may only have to do 100 surgeries before you convince the FDA that this is absolutely important for the health of the American population. But in cases like lung cancer, for example, and we're performing with our tumor-targeted fluorescent dyes uh, surgeries on ovarian cancer, on lung cancer, on kidney cancer, on brain cancer, and so forth. So, but in lung cancer, the lesion may be a single lesion, and then what you're really looking for is that a maverick lesion, that uh, that secondary site that. If uh, gone undetected w- will almost certainly kill the patient, so it 's very important to find any metastatic lesion there. but in many cases, there is no second secondary site it doesn 't uh, metastasize quite uh, at least early on quite as widely as the ovarian cancer seems to do so it you know it depends on the particular um, cancer, and in some cases we 're not really looking to find uh, malignant lesions in distant sites, maybe in some tumors will be more interested in finding uh, the um, sentinel lymph nodes or the draining lymph nodes that have uh, accumulated cancer cells. Or in other cases, for example, in breast cancer surgery, as I mentioned, up to 40% of those cancers recur at the site of the surgery, meaning they left diseased tissue behind. What you really would like to do there is shave until the fluorescence is gone. You just continue to shave off. And because women are fond of their breasts, they don't want to have a, an extra large amount removed. But if you can just take enough to assure they will survive, that they have, you've removed all of the disease and leave all the healthy tissue behind, then that benefits everybody.
0: Now, in surgery, of course, mm-hmm. you've opened up the human body and you're right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Can you detect the fluorescence from outside the human body? (laughs) Excellent
3: question. Um, I think in as we develop improved uh, contrast agents, these are the the near infrared dyes. There are some that may be out in the in the far infrared or almost microwave region uh, that can indeed be detected uh, much deeper. To date, uh, uh, we've been able to detect. malignant disease uh, at depths uh, up to uh, two and a half or more centimeters. In fact, I think one of the surgeons indicated they saw disease as deep as four centimeters. So we're getting uh, closer to that objective, but we're not there yet. We, I'm sure in some cases uh, that we're missing a lot of disease that is buried that deeply into the uh, patient's tissue. Um, but that's an objective, and I think the technology can be uh, adapted to achieve that.
0: With metastasis, we're always worried about Uh where Uh are the cancer cells going. Uh Uh, When you inject these targeting agents, they're not just going to where you're operating, they're going all over your body. Can we tell anything about metastasis from this?
3: Yes, I think um, the obstacle to that is, of course, getting the camera to the distant sites. Uh, what we have found is that uh, the malignant lesions, regardless of where th- where they are, light up, and they remain lit for a, a while. Um, if I can just d- diverge onto a little story here, uh, one of our surgeons at the University of Pennsylvania used the um, our fluorescent uh, tumor-targeted fluorescent dye to try to remove a-, a brain tumor. Okay, and the state of the art is to do this endoscopically, and so he went up through the nose into the brain by that pathway, and was able to remove most of the cancer, but because the uh, tool that he had couldn't bend around a corner when going up through the nose and through the sinus cavities in the brain, he in this particular case had to um, remove the tools and tell the patient, "We've got to go in through the skull and cut out, uh, you know, a piece of the skull and go in and get what we missed because they could still see fluorescence around the corner, uh, up, th- you know, in the cavity." I gotta get you. I can see you. Yeah. Uh huh. So they did cut it out, uh, but they had to wait five days to let the patient recover and and uh, from the original surgery up through the nose. And when they opened it up, the tumor was still bright, brightly fluorescent. So even five days later, it was it still retained the tumor-targeted uh, fluorescent dye. So I think that uh, if you can get a camera in to the site nearby, uh, you, you can even Wait days, and you can go back in and see the, the diseased tissue, um, the issue will be the technology for getting the cameras to the right place. And, well, that's uh, not good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in many cases you can Get do that. Get the engineers after it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, or, I, and again, as I said, you know, we can always uh, hope that these new generations of contrast agents will allow a visualization of much deeper lesions, yeah.
0: In the old days, we associated cancer with the part of the body we found it in. Yeah. You know, you're going after one cancer after another. Have you found that they're different or the same as you go to the what we nor, how we normally or typically uh, classify cancer?
3: Oh, I think that all cancers are different. I think, in, in, indeed, I just returned from the. Uh, American Association for Cancer Research National Meetings. And uh, I mean, this isn't uh, news, but it was reinforced at this meeting that even within a single patient, if you sequence the cancer cell's genome on, at one site in a solid tumor mass and then move over a centimeter away and sequence it at, at a different site, they're different cancers. They have mutated and developed different characteristics. And I think... That brings up a very important point, Moira, and that is that um, in order really to be sure that uh, one picks up all the malignant disease with a uh, tumor-targeted fluorescent dye, I think it will be essential in the future to use a cocktail of, of, of dyes because one may pick up uh, tumor marker A, and allow you to visualize, let's say, 60% of human cancers, and will pick up tumor marker B, and maybe it picks up 70% of human cancers. But to make sure there's are no cancers that are missed by both A and B, you want component C in that cocktail that picks up the rest. And our feeling is right now that a cocktail of somewhere around four or so tumor-targeted uh, fluorescent dyes uh, will cover more than 90 to 95% of all human cancers and enable visualization of virtually all of them. You've yep. got to
0: find the neighborhood and clean it out.
3: That's right. You're exactly right. Yeah. yeah.
0: Now, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to know that, gee, if you can put dyes yeah. on these yeah. targeting modules, you could also put drugs on them. Yeah. You've yeah. worked on that as well.
3: Yeah. yeah actually, we have... Uh, Now, um, I guess it is seven targeted drugs in human clinical trials that are based on this same principle, uh, exactly as you said, if you can... uh, very specifically target a fluorescent dye to the cancer cells you can also target a very nasty uh, cytotoxic drug that will kill these cells and so uh, the um, regulatory hurdles in terms of passing the fda for getting these much nastier drugs into humans is much more difficult but they we're moving forward with those and we have as i say a number of these drugs in clinical development. I mean, they're not all nasty drugs in one case, for example. We've learned to target immune cells, the the, uh, um, uh, killer T-cells that are part of the immune system that are uh, intrinsically capable of killing cancer cells if you can just teach them where the cancer cell, what the cancer cell looks like where it is, tell it where it is. And so we are using our targeting molecules to target those T-cells very specifically to the cancer cells too. Uh, We use these homing molecules for multiple applications.
0: Now, you're the chief science officer of about five companies. You've started, co-founded, if not founded, all these companies. You're still a dyed-in-the-wool professor. But, you know, you're walking two sides of the street here, Phil. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How do you do that? How do you do that?
3: Well, I I recognize uh, what I... I believe I might do well, and then I also recognize what I know I don't do well, and I'm not good at business, and so what I have done is hired uh, uh, smart business people to run the business, and I try to um, relieve myself of all uh, these business duties and focus my efforts on activities that I believe I do better than the business. And so I, I really spend 90% of my time in my lab at Purdue University and only 10% running around with the companies that I've started. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but sometimes they need new science or translational science or changes yeah. in approach. Yeah. Certainly that draws you back in.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, it, there's a constant communication between the, the, the company and my lab at, at Purdue University. As a matter of fact, i find a lot of the research in my lab from grants uh, from my own companies. And then there's a, a relationship or an agreement with Purdue University, where um, if the company funds the research, then they have first right of refusal for any patents that emerge from that uh, that research. And you know, I have I don't know over 60 patents that have come out of this kind of sponsored research um, in the last few years, and uh, the companies have all benefited tremendously from these. In fact. Almost all the technology in all of these companies originated. Now, it was all improved and and optimized in the companies, but the original discoveries uh, almost all... In fact, I think all of them uh, started in my lab.
0: Well, don't forget, we have the, we have the, the professor here who's doing all this research, <laughs> mm-hmm. and we've got companies doing all this business, yeah. but we also have the FDA and in other countries yeah. uh, similar regulatory agencies. That in itself is really hard.
3: Oh, it is. It is definitely hard. And right now, I mean, one of our drugs, I didn't mention it, it's not related to cancer, but... Outside of the cancer arena, we have drugs moving through clinical trials in other areas, and one of those is malaria. And we're dealing right now with the Ministry of Health in Vietnam, where we're conducting clinical trials on this new therapy for malaria. And uh, it's been, uh, you know, they've been very helpful, but I must say it's been very difficult uh, for quite a number of reasons. not least of which is that the region where we want where we're conducting the trials is right on the border with Laos and in Cambodia where the drug resistant strains of malaria are rampant but at the same time where they have tribal villages that they don't like to let foreigners into and so there's this uh, you know contradiction here how do you treat these patients with the drug resistant forms of malaria if you can't get into the villages <laughs> yeah. hmm. they're not glad to see you when they ought to be <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> I, let me m- mention one more thing I think one more advantage to this fluorescence guided surgery that we haven't identified in our conversation yet, and that is that surgery of the future is going to be increasingly less invasive. In other words, surgeons are going to go in with endoscopes and laparoscopes and very small devices to try to invade the body with the least possible trauma, the smallest incision. This eliminates the opportunity for the surgeon to really see the malignant disease well and to feel it. In other words, you're not going to be sticking your hand into someone's brain any longer. Uh, And so this requires, to compensate for this loss of tactile and visual identification, New tools must be developed, and I think this is where the fluorescence-guided surgery using tumor-targeted fluorescent dyes will actually not only supplant what was used before but actually improve on it.
0: Well, Phil, this has been terrific. You've mm-hmm. you got so much work to do. I can't believe you had time to come and see us, but please,
3: <laughs> anytime yeah. you can take a
0: break and come and see us, we'd love to talk to you again. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Well, it's my pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation, too, Moira.
0: Dr. Phil Lau is a distinguished professor of chemistry at Purdue University and the director of the Purdue Center for Drug Discovery. He's also the chief scientific officer of Endocyte. More information is available at endocyte.com. That's E-N-D-O, endocyte, C-Y-T-E, endocyte.com. At this point, we're all pretty comfortable with DNA. It's a combination coming from mom and dad, and it's the program of who we are. Now that DNA somehow has to get read and translated into proteins. Dr. Richard Kuhn is a professor of biological sciences at Purdue University and director of the Purdue Institute for Inflammation, Immunology, and Infectious Disease.
4: Normally, but there are all kinds of caveats that we've found out in the last decade or two. But normally, DNA, and then it's encrypted in RNA, and that RNA then encodes for the building of proteins, which is, you know, what you see, basically. Pro-
0: everything, you're, oh, everything we're looking is, at we are is a protein.
4: That's right. And those proteins carry out lots of chemical reactions, and they make us what we are.
0: Now, we're born with the DNA. Is the RNA, are we born with that too, or is that created on the spot?
4: So RNA is required for a number of very basic processes that the cell uses. So when we make proteins, there's machinery that the cell constructs, and that machinery is made up of both proteins and RNA. But the RNA is really the messenger, and we call it actually messenger RNA, for delivering the information that's stored very stable in dna into the cell and so that we can make proteins from that messenger rna
0: sort of like you can load up your laptop or your cell phone or your tablet with an application but if you don't punch it and get it to run it, nothing's happening
4: that's right that's yeah. right the rna is kind of the intermediate between a very stable form of genetic information dna and the building blocks that make the cell work that's the protein
0: now We're talking about viruses today. In fact, we're going to talk about RNA virus. What's that?
4: So RNA viruses have avoided the use of DNA. They have all of their genetic information stored within RNA itself. So it's much easier to go from the viral genome, the viral nucleic acid, you know, the genetic information of a virus, from RNA directly into protein.
0: Ah, so it says, well, we, know, we don't care what your DNA is. We're going to invade this RNA yes. and switch up the protein it's producing. That's
4: right. We're going to avoid the DNA world and everything associated with it. We're just going to take over that DNA world.
0: And what kind of viruses would be RNA viruses that we'd
4: know? So the very popular one that we've been talking about is Zika virus, for example. But poliovirus, um, the viruses that cause the common cold, flu, This is an RNA virus. Um, HIV is, is an RNA virus. So lots of very common viruses that we're familiar with are actually RNA viruses.
0: In that HIV, they call that a retrovirus. Is that the same thing? That's different.
4: They call it a retrovirus because it has an unusual lifestyle. It actually is transported from cell to cell as an RNA virus in the RNA form But when it gets into a cell, it infects the cell, it converts that RNA into DNA. And that DNA now looks just like the host. And in fact, what the retrovirus does is it inserts its DNA into the host genome, okay? So you cannot then distinguish between the retrovirus genetic information and, for example, the human genetic information.
0: These viruses are very tricky.
4: They are very tricky indeed.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought up Zika because you were the first to discover the structure of the Zika virus. What did that
4: take? The hardest part was uh, getting virus and then growing virus. Uh, It's not so easy uh, to be able to... Uh, grow this virus in large amounts, which was needed for our initial experiments. And so we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how could we grow the virus and produce it in very large quantities. Now, having said that, you know, this is a virus uh, that can cause uh, significant problems, especially in women who are pregnant. And so, you know, that was something that we had to be um, very careful about.
0: Now, if we go back to a, a, a famous structure that was decoded, such as DNA, (laughs) Watson and Crick and Rosalind Franklin, we're talking about crystallography and pictures and things. We don't do that anymore, do we? Uh,
4: That certainly is used, but uh, what we used to solve the structure of Zika virus is an emerging technique that's called cryo-electron microscopy. So you use an electron microscope and you flash freeze your samples. And there's a lot of pieces that actually go into it, so it's not as simple as I'm making out. But using advanced techniques that really have, have come in the last two or three years, we can now do exactly what people have done for 50 to 100 years with crystallography, and we can do it with a microscope now. And so. We did it in a very fast uh, pace uh, because we had this capability of using this this new instrument, this cryo-electron microscope. So we were able to actually determine the structure of the virus within really about two weeks or so.
0: And lots of people were trying to determine it.
4: That's right. So it was somewhat of a race. In In 2016, I think everybody was really frantic with the emerging epidemic of Zika virus and trying to understand how this virus was causing the problems that we've heard about. And so every piece of information was really valuable to begin to really attack it in a sensible, rational way. Any surprises
0: in the Zika virus?
4: We had previously solved the structure of a very closely related virus called dengue virus. And dengue is a virus that infects hundreds of millions of people around the world every dengue year. It can lead to dengue fever, right. And so we had done that. And so Zika was very similar in structure. But those two viruses, although they look very similar, they act in very different ways. Uh, Zika is able to cross the placenta, it's able to infect neurons or developing neurons, uh, dengue does not do that. And so we really wanted to understand from the structure, which is the outside of the virus, you know, what features would allow that virus to get across the placenta and, and do the damage that it does. Now, you're the director of the Purdue
0: Institute for Inflammation. Immunology and infectious disease. Yeah, I'm not. We call uh,
4: it Pi four D. Okay, <laughs>
0: that sounds good. But I'm yep. not coming over for lunch anytime. <laughs> in case you guys didn't clean up, you know, it's so like this sounds like a dangerous, very dangerous place to be. Where is studying the Zika virus within inflammation, immunology, and infectious disease?
4: Right so we know it's an infectious disease uh it's been spreading all over the americas and it will continue to spread it'll probably spread to you know other other continents and so there's your infectious disease component what's really important is how do we develop vaccines and vaccines are going to be um, developing a, a set of antibodies that are going to control and prevent the disease. Okay, so that's your, your immunology component. And then, you know, when the virus infects the brain, uh, there's inflammation that occurs because you, you, the virus is going in and it's killing certain types of cells. And that process results in inflammation.
0: It's almost like we now understand that all those pieces have to be together.
4: That's Right. So That's right. We might
0: not have named it this 25 years ago.
4: That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, let's say you develop a Zika vaccine. This doesn't mean you're going around killing all the Zika virus in your system.
4: There are about 45 different vaccines that are being developed around the world right now. Of course, uh, we need one really good one, although probably there'll be a few that actually hit the market. The idea behind the vaccine is, is to develop immunity uh, protection in an individual before they see the virus. And so that process is, you know, an antibody uh, process where you are then protected against virus infection. And the, the bottom line for the vaccine is to prevent the disease. And so that's one strategy. The second strategy is what if you already got infected with the virus? What can you do then? There you can't rely on a vaccine. You have to rely on some kind of antiviral. And so there are many uh, laboratories, companies that are now trying to develop antivirals that will control Zika virus once you're infected with it, especially if a woman who's pregnant uh, is infected. And that adds another layer of complication. If you're just treating an adult with an antiviral, okay, those clinical trials are relatively straightforward. But now, if you have to do a clinical trial in which you're trying to demonstrate that it's going to protect the fetus, that's another layer of complication.
0: Big complication. That's a big complication. Big
4: complication. And it seems to me also
0: that if you're protected because you didn't have the Zika virus. You almost don't care that the virus is coming out. You you're not going to get sick from it.
4: Yeah, that's that's an important point. But if you think about a population that many people get vaccinated, then the ability of mosquitoes to spread the virus or to pick up the virus and spread the virus is reduced significantly. So if we can get a large segment of the population vaccinated against Zika virus the transmission rate by mosquitoes is going to drop significantly. And that's really another important component of of vaccination and having lots of people get vaccinated. I should say that for poliovirus, just like for influenza virus, there is an incredibly good surveillance network around the world in which people are actively looking for cases of poliovirus. Because as you get down to, you know, five and ten infections per year of polio virus, you really want to make sure you count every one of them. And so the surveillance network for polio is exceedingly good around the world.
0: Now, you work on many different viruses in your lab. You work uh, with many different people, scientists doing many different aspects of this. What do you need for a team? You're not all the same scientists, right?
4: Well, the team really needs to have a common goal. And our common goal is usually that we can control and eliminate disease and disease burden uh in the population. And so we all have that same goal. We wanna get rid, we wanna we wanna free the world of of a polio, a polio in which children get uh paralyzed and, and some of them die. We wanna get rid of that. That's a burden that the world doesn't need. We need to make sure that viruses like Zika um can be controlled. We'd like to be able to control them in advance of an outbreak like we've seen for Zika virus. Zika has about 70 relatives, some of which we know about and some of which we even have vaccines for, but there's a whole bunch that are actually under the radar that no one works on because they don't cause human disease or the human disease is very mild. These are ones in particular that we have to be careful about because these viruses, They can change rapidly, they evolve rapidly, and we never know which one is going to change and begin causing disease.
0: Well, congratulations on being the first to discover the structure of the Zika virus, and uh, hope you'll come back and see us again, Richard.
4: Oh, thank you very much, Myra. Dr. Richard
0: Kuhn is a professor of biological sciences at Purdue University and director of the Purdue Institute for Inflammation, Immunology, and Infectious Disease. For Tech Nation and for Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: TechNation Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancour.